Good evening, and welcome to FMB Radio Sport, episode four. I'm Felix. And I'm Kieran. And this evening, we'll be covering a range of topics. We'll begin by busting some stereotypes about being black and swimming, and we'll look at the amazing heritage of black swimming excellence, and that no one should be put off from enjoying the water due to narratives that are false. This evening, we'll also begin to explore the equality progress we need to make in sports as we look at just some of International Women's Day's relevance to sport. As the 50th anniversary of the so-called fight of the century arrives this month, we'll also remember the famous boxing match between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. That is a central boxing history. And then we'll take a turn towards looking at the conversation about mental health and how it can be hard but important for the sporting world to talk about it. We hope you enjoy FMB Radio Sport, episode four. Two weeks ago, we spoke of a BBC interview with LGBT athletes such as swimmer Michael Gunning. One of the amazing things about Gunning is that not only is he trailblazing as a swimmer who's gay, he's also a swimmer who's black, which is not very common in the world of swimming and aquatics, where black people are seriously underrepresented. This underrepresentation largely comes from entrenched stereotypes that black people just don't, haven't or can't swim. And Gunning has talked about overcoming these stereotypes in his rise to the top of British, both British and Jamaican swimming. He's actually training to compete for Jamaica at the Tokyo Olympics this year. If, if they happen, right. But the thing is, these, stereoty- these stereotypes and myths that black people can't swim, they're, they're just not true. In fact, the reality is quite the opposite. Yeah, and historian Kevin Dawson, who grew up as a black swimmer and surfer in California and released his book in 2018, Undercurrents of Power, Aquatic Culture in the African Diaspora, has been researching into the rich and long history of black swimming and aquatic excellence that has largely been hidden or erased by white slave owners and those who sought to disempower black people. As he dug into history, he found that long before and even during the mass European colonisation sorry about that, of Africa and the slave trade, black people were once the best swimmers, and I quote Dawson here, to be found on the planet. And actually, after the fall of the Roman Empire, much of white Europe had forgotten how to swim. It's only been more recently in history that oppressors sought to disempower black people by erasing this history. This, along with an unfair and systemic lack of access to water over a century or so, has seen less black people represented in the world of water. Some of the amazing examples Dawson uses to show this forgotten black excellence in swimming date further than half a millennia back. In 1455, a Venetian merchant adventurer, Alvista Calamosto, wrote about the amazing talent of the black swimmers he saw in the Senegal River, claiming that they were the most expert swimmers in the world. He even tried to prove it by challenging some of the swimmers to carry a note to his ship three miles off the coast, which he thought was impossible and the conditions were stormy at the time. Two of them accepted, returning an hour later with a reply from someone aboard the ship. And he documented that this was just the best swimming talent he thought existed. It's interesting though, um, only one person is recorded to have gotten back. So um, it did show it was a pretty treacherous, treacherous time. Perhaps both mm-hmm. got back. I hope, got, I hope both got back. Yeah. Um... Dawson Barnes, another amazing example in 1545, when King Henry VIII's flagship, the Mary Rose, was sunk just off the coast of Portsmouth. None of the experts that were hired could salvage the wreck and retrieve all the important things that were on the ship. But when the Venetian expert running the operation hired the help of eight African divers, who were so successful 
they became highly esteemed in the maritime world and were hired to salvage many other shipwrecks off the coast of England and across the Atlantic and across the Mediterranean. You also notice that, importantly, these divers weren't slaves, they were highly skilled workers, and they even stayed in prestigious inns around England where many nobles came to stay. It showed that they defied and overcome the notions of racial, racial subjugation against Africans with their great talent. Another example Dawson gives of the power swimming gave black people was a record from 1823 of Jamaican women bathing and doing laundry in the Turtle Crawl River. When white men would approach to assault them, they would swim into the river where the white men couldn't follow, and, and then they could taunt back from the safety of the water. Dawson found it was clear that swimming empowered black people, and sadly, when white slave owners could recognise this, they then sought to take, take it away, often projecting their own fear of the water onto the slaves, and the unfree world many black people subsequently lived in restricted their access to the water. So, in short, it's a total myth that black people can't swim. So it's really important that the myths aren't spread, which could restrict people from taking up swimming, which is super beneficial. Not only is it important for water safety, but it's amazing exercise. And for many like Dawson, it's just a joy to be in the water. His message is that swimming, along with surfing that he's very passionate about, is part of black heritage that is out there to be reclaimed. Yeah, totally. Okay, so we now turn to our next topic this evening. This month has seen the 2021 International Women's Day, which champions the need for greater equality for women around the world. And this year, it has a particular focus on women in leadership. Sadly, in the world of sport, there has been and there still is a gap in equality in pay, publicity and in acceptance of women in sports. In 65 years, the BBC sport, BBC's Sport Personality of the Year Award, women have won only won it less than 20% of the time. And this is not down to a lack of UK female talent when we have the likes of Jessica Ennis-Hill, Nicola Adams and Paula Radcliffe, just to name a few of the stars that have come through recently. Yeah, and whilst there is still a disappointing inequality between women's and men's sport, there are signs of progress, luckily. In 2019, the Women's Football World Cup saw a surge in interest in the Games. The England versus USA semi-final was watched by 11.7 million viewers in the UK. It was one of the most watched TV events of the year. However, this still wasn't even half as many as the, as the 26.5 million in the UK who watched the England men's World Cup semi-final the year before. So there is still a long way to go before we see both the men and women's games being seen with equal importance. In light of International Women's Day, it would be good to take this opportunity to show how women's football hasn't always been the less popular option to men's football, if we look back in history. So there is hope that we can achieve more gender equality in the sport. During the First World War, women's football took over from men's football because of many of the men were abroad fighting. And then to show that women's football is just as good to watch as the men's, even after the war ended and the men's games resumed again, the women's matches remained popular. A women's match in 1920 was attended by 53,000 spectators. I mean, that's more than you get at many Premier League games. In fact, well, it's definitely more than you get at the Premier League games oh, at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's bigger, that's bigger than the, the limit of a lot of Premier League stadiums even. It's, that's ridiculous. It's massive. Yeah. However, the FA banned women playing in official league matches a year later in 1921. And this soon saw the men's game rise to the top and dominate the world of football once more. But if only the FA didn't do that, perhaps we'd perhaps we'd be on a much better course to gender equality in football. Still, it shows that reaching these goals of equality are totally possible. 
One of the key players of that match was a woman called Lily Park, who scored over 900 goals in her entire career. To put that into perspective, very recently, Cristiano Ronaldo, I think this month actually, celebrated beating Pelé's record for the number of goals scored in his career, reaching just 770 in total, which is a lot of goals. But he's still got a long way to go to beat Lily Park. Now, moving on to a more sombre note, as we recognise the importance of International Women's Day, since the death of Sarah Everard, not long after International Women's Day, many women have been speaking out and sharing their experiences of the streets of the UK not feeling safe. Among those to raise concerns have been female athletes like Great Britain middle distance runner Sabrina Sinha and two-time Olympian marathon runner Mara Yamauchi, who have revealed how even as they go on their training runs, they often receive a barrage of harassment. Sinha revealed that she's more likely to be harassed than not be harassed when she goes on her training runs. And she is shocked by how many people, particularly men, don't know what she contends with and thinks it's important that people are made aware of these issues. Yamauchi talked about how important it is that men don't run so close to women, particularly when men follow closely from behind, because it can be distressing and cause anxiousness. She said it can be fixed easily. It's just really important that men are educated about this. Yeah, and she says it could be as simple as men just educating each other that they, that they should give women their distance when running. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've got to bear that in mind as well. Mm. <clears throat> and in other sporting news, International Women's Day this year also coincided with some more significant sporting history. This month has also seen the 50th anniversary of the fight of the century which was the world-renowned boxing match when Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier fought for the first time back in 1971. It was colossal. The fight was hugely anticipated and hyped up. Ali and Frazier were both undefeated champions up to that day, each with their own unique fighting style and prestige. Yeah, with Muhammad Ali winding up his opponent with his famous smooth talk for weeks beforehand, the stage was set for the most watched sporting event in history at the time. It was actually televised in over 12 different languages across the world. Yeah, and this build-up also had important political undertones and symbolism, symbolism too. Muhammad Ali was a heroic symbol of resisting co- the controversial Vietnam War efforts, championing the rights of African-Americans and Muslims in America. Meanwhile, he had alienated Joe Frazier for the black, from the black community, painting him as a man who had sided with the white oppressors. Whilst Frazier was much quieter and reserved than Ali, what Ali accused him of made him furious, which again fed right back into the build-up of the fight. And the boxing match that followed did not fail to meet, the, meet this anticipation, confirming it was the greatest fight of the century. Ali dominated in the beginning, but Frazier withstood a tremendous amount of punishment from Ali to turn the fight around after the sixth round. And this was really important. Ali had actually predicted he'd knock Frazier down in the sixth. So, in fact, I think you predicted he'd, he'd knock Frazier out in the sixth. So it was a really important turning point that Frazier had survived six rounds. Yeah, and after a, a comeback from Ali again in round 14, Frazier managed to knock down Ali in the 15th and final round, winning the, winning the match in the end. Wow, yeah. And fights don't even last 15 rounds anymore because it's simply too dangerous. They only last 13 now. So, in all, this fight was monumental. And... Though not many people remember Frazier's really big achievement that day. That's a little fact you can take out. It was actually Frazier that won. 
Yeah, and they did also go on to complete a trilogy with Ali, which I think it, this is why it's kind of forgotten. Since Ali won the subsequent two fights, and which yeah, is yeah. why he is probably one of the you know the greatest fighters of all time, many would say. Yeah, definitely. And now, moving on to another crucial issue in sports as a whole, there is a stigma about discussing mental health, and this is particularly clear in football. This lack of sport is even clearer in lower leagues as players are subject to abuse through social media and rival fans, and they don't get the credit and positive coverage players at the very top often receive. Although there has been collaboration between mental health charity Mind and the English Football League, with slogans for mental health on teams' shirts throughout the lower leagues, there is still much work to do, and hopefully in the near future, the issue of mental health will achieve exposure in the Premier League as well as in the lower league. Similarly, the charity Calm, or Campaign Against Living Miserably, have launched the Calm Football Collective with the aim of bringing players, fans and the general community together by spreading positivity through uplifting stories in football and community events. Now, here's a handful of footballers who have come forward about mental health. Danny Rose, who played for Tottenham, has spoken out against racism, mental health and the football industry after being frozen out of Tottenham team and struggling to adapt to injury, while personal issues and changes within the club, such as a change of manager, made his situation all the more difficult. He opened up about depression following a knee injury in 2017, which ruled him out of football for eight months alongside he's had some horrible familial issues and losses as well. Rose's uncle passed away, his mother was racially abused and his brother was actually shot by an assailant whilst at the family home. At a similar time, he was expected to be focused on and preparing for the World Cup, all the whilst receiving treatment for a knee injury involving numerous injections and painkillers as a result of his surgery being delayed. And he had to ask his family not to come and watch him at the 2018 World Cup as he feared they would suffer from a racially motivated attack. After suffering from racist abuse while on international duty in Montenegro, he claimed he was longing for retirement. Another English left-back, Ben Chilwell of Chelsea, also spoke up about his struggles with loneliness and mental health during the first lockdown and highlighted the need to speak to others about mental health. And again, Rio Ferdinand, um, he has spoken up about openness and mental health following the death of his wife, revealing he'd suffered from panic attacks and began drinking it as a result. Yeah, Ferdinand explained, I sit in my bedroom and cry, but actually talking about feelings is different. Uh, he, he explained further and he said, I'm from a dressing room culture. I was closed off emotionally and I thought it was a weakness for a man to show his emotions. And these quotes from Ferdinand pretty much encapsulate this massive invisible issue in the sporting world. Not all people will suffer from tragedy as Ferdinand did, losing his wife Rebecca Ellison, aged just 34. However, many sports persons will struggle throughout their careers mentally and never have this push to talk publicly and aim to help others, allowing this widespread problem to persist. Other players, such as Ryan Giggs, have admitted to looking for professional mental health help during their playing careers. However, this is still only a handful of examples, and while many players will struggle with mental health or seek help over it, it remains taboo in the football and definitely in the wider sporting world um, as acting tough and this perceived masculinity in many sports um, still can reign supreme in a way. And mental health problems can affect anyone. The Royal College of Psychiatrics find that 3.3% of people suffer from depression, 6% from anxiety disorder, and 7.8% from mixed anxiety and depression. Yeah, so it, it could really affect anyone. Um, so it is really important to, to seek help for it, like Ryan Giggs did, and to talk to people at the moment, since we're 
since we're in lockdown with each other or since we're in lockdown away from each other. Absolutely. But an yeah. excellent example of dispelling this image of masculinity and silence over mental health is um, a controversial figure at Love Him or Loathe Him, Tyson Fury, who despite being in one of the most macho, tough sports possible in boxing, has gone into detail about the depths of his mental health issues and his road to recovery. Yeah, following his victory against Vladimir Klitschko in late 2015, Fury fell into a deep depression. Having lost purpose, he began suffering from alcoholism, became obese and racked up millions of pounds of debt and nearly ended his own life in 2016. Following his intense lows and having had his boxing license revoked, Fury was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Despite suffering such harrowing lows, Fury found the strength to come back from the brink through prayer, through exercise and motivation to recover his career, spurred on also by Deontay Wilder's taunts that Fury would never make a comeback. He began exercising again, and over time, he recovered his physical condition and his mental state improved and stabilised. Through all this work, Fury built back his life and fought Deontay Wilder twice, controversially drawing the first time, although many believe he should have won on points, and winning by technical knockout the next, with a trilogy likely to be completed. Yeah, well, keep your eyes open for that next fight between Deontay Wilder and Fury. But having suffered so much in silence, Fury now is a huge advocate for mental health in sport and has highlighted the need for him to play a character and ignore his own feelings while in front of the cameras. While Fury has been a world-class boxer for much of his career, he felt to draw in fans and make money as a fighter, he had to act crazy and create this, create this character for himself, dubbing himself the Gypsy King. Although showmanship is a part of most television, Fury has criticised this culture as he, he neglected his own mental health for years as a result of playing a character too much. Since his return to sport, although still a showman, definitely, Fury now displays a much more personal side of himself and spreads awareness for mental health through interviews. Just last week, it was announced that Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua had signed contracts agreeing to a unification fight for the WBA, WBO, IBF and WBC belts, essentially all the all the belts in heavyweight boxing. It's and big. in a couple of years, it's massive. And in a couple of years, Tyson Fury has fought back against the unhealthy environment in sport, improved his mental health massively and is now on the cusp of the next fight of the century, potentially, at least so far. As well. So now as episode four of our sports programme comes to a close, we've looked at the discrimination and stereotypes faced by black swimmers how misplaced these stereotypes are, considering the accomplished history of black swimming, while considering why and where such untrue stereotypes were created. And after all, there is a rich heritage of black swimming and aquatics to be reclaimed. We've also focused on women's sport in the wake of International Women's Day and the continual issues that, that just plague how women's sport is perceived and supported. Women's football is a prime example of this when considering how it's regarded compared to men's football. Despite such issues, women's football is still on the rise and it could easily become a very highly regarded global sport in the coming years, hopefully with the English national team continuing to, see, to succeed as well. And finally, we discussed the invisible issue around all sports, that is mental health, including its specific impact on football, as well as the culture in most sports of locking away emotions that hopefully we can break down in the future. Tyson Fury also provides us with a wonderful example of how people can come back from any depths they fall to, and how there is always light at the end of the tunnel. From a truly dark place in 2016, he's worked his way back into sport and now faces possibly the next fight of the century against Anthony Joshua. 50 years on, 
from the great fight between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any ideas you'd like to hear us discuss, we'd love to hear them. So feel free to email me at felix at fmbradio.com or me at kieran at fmbradio.com.